The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. It was June 20th, 1947. Virginia Hill sipped wine in a Parisian cafe. To passersby, she was just another American tourist. No one suspected that soon, this 30-year-old woman would top the FBI's most wanted list. For years, she'd operated rackets across the United States, handling millions in laundered money and stolen goods for the mafia. Now her boyfriend, Ben Bugsy Siegel, was hatching plans to conquer Las Vegas. When she flew to Paris, Virginia left Bugsy in her lavish LA home. The mob was planning to murder him. She'd been ordered to ensure it happened. As a rule, Virginia was loyal to no one. She delighted in toppling the world's deadliest men. When she was instructed to lure her lover into an assassin's trap, she didn't flinch. The mob always said she was one tough cookie. As she stared at the Eiffel Tower, Virginia looked calm, collected. On the inside though, she was starting to crack. For 14 years, she'd been playing a dangerous game, getting her kicks by lying, stealing, and sleeping with hardened criminals. Very soon, Virginia would come under heavy fire for her criminal activities. For now, however, she was enjoying her reign as queen of the mob. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the Parcast Network. Today, we're talking about Virginia Hill, who infiltrated the mafia's innermost circles as a money launderer becoming known as the queen of organized crime. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast's shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. Only one woman has ever ascended the highest ranks of the mafia, becoming a powerful mobster in her own right, Virginia Hill. She sat at tables with Al Capone and Lucky Luciano, handled millions of dollars for the mob, and made millions more for herself. The 1930s and 40s was a time of tense rivalry and territoriality between mafia outfits. Virginia, however, 
had the distinction of being welcome in nearly every single family. While many men would have been gunned down for entering enemy territory, Virginia came as she pleased through Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, and most of Mexico. Everywhere she went, she did well. This episode will discuss how Virginia rose to prominence within the mafia, becoming a trusted operative. The next episode will examine the strain as law enforcement caught on to her criminal lifestyle and how it contributed to her untimely death. Oni Virginia Hill was born on August 26, 1916, in Lipscomb, Alabama. She was the seventh of ten children born to W.M. Hill, who went by the name Mac. Mac was a working-class horse and mule trader. When he was sober, he was a sharp businessman, known for conning customers. According to locals, he would sell livestock above market value and pocket the profits. According to Virginia, who detested him her entire life, he rarely used the extra money to feed his family. Instead, he squandered it on bourbon, women, and low-life bar friends. Virginia also said that Mac viciously beat his children and his wife, Margaret, when drunk or hungover. He was usually one or the other. When Virginia was born, her family lived in a cramped four-room ramshackle house. To ease some of their financial burden, Margaret, Virginia's mother, picked up odd jobs wherever she could. In the 1920s, work opportunities for women were broadening. Women would soon win the right to vote. They were more commonly attending college and were also replacing men in the workplace. Margaret joined many women as an unskilled laborer, spending more and more time on factory floors. Without a better option for childcare, the children were raised by Mac or left to fend for themselves. When Virginia was still a baby, her mother was hired to run a boarding house in Bessemer, several miles away. The family relocated and Mac continued selling livestock when he could. As Virginia grew up, she remained small and was, at first, very passive, like many children in large families. Her siblings nicknamed her Tab because her constant helpless look reminded them of a tabby cat. At school, Virginia was quite popular. With her good humor and generosity, she made friends quickly. Her brother George once recalled her using his store account to purchase alarm clocks for her friends. Already in the first grade, Virginia was learning to take care of people, a habit that would win her favor with the country's biggest crime lords. With Margaret working most of the day, Mac abused his children more frequently. By the age of seven, Virginia was the usual target. She was small, meek, and the least likely to fight back. Before long, however, the seven-year-old grew tired of being a punching bag. One evening, Mac came home drunk and made a move towards her. Without flinching, she grabbed a skillet off the stove, still bubbling with scalding hot grease. Virginia struck her father in the chest, sending him across the room. As he reeled from the blow, she taunted him, skillet in hand, daring him to come towards her again. After that, Mac only took his frustrations out on Margaret. He never hit Virginia again. Years later, Virginia recalled the event as the first time she ever stood up to anyone. She was afraid at first, but when she saw how quickly her father crumbled, she decided she would never take such abuse again. Virginia said her biggest fear at the time was that she would lose the love of her father. When she hit him, however, she realized 
there was no love to lose. Before we start to delve into Virginia psychology, I just want to give a brief disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. To understand Virginia Hill, you have to understand the time she was born into and how she defied it. No one had tried to stop Mac before because he was the head of the household. Virginia's mother often advised her to take the abuse and not discuss it outside of the home. Virginia, however, saw through Mac's intimidation, and it gave her a fearless confidence. She would delight in tearing down villains the rest of her life, perhaps because of the status it provided her. Psychologist Henry Murray calls this a need for power, a desire that likely embedded in Virginia at an early age as the overlooked daughter of an abusive father and an absent mother. Though Virginia disagreed with Margaret about taking Mac's abuse, she did admire her mother's work ethic. She saw how her mother succeeded, financially and emotionally, without the help of a man. Virginia wanted this for herself. After the frying pan incident, Margaret took Virginia and her siblings to live with her mother, Mrs. J.P. Reed, in Marietta, Georgia. Margaret found work at a hosiery mill, rarely seeing Mac again. The two remained legally separated, but never officially divorced. Marietta was undoubtedly a better place to grow up for Virginia. She was surrounded by strong role models, like her aunt and grandmother, a feisty free spirit who chopped cotton until she was 86 years old. Virginia's childhood, however, was short-lived. At the age of eight, she was called upon to support her family. In addition to school, which was losing her interest, she found work cooking and cleaning. She also took care of her brothers and sisters when Margaret was at the mill. Though her mother made the decision to leave Mac, Virginia said she always felt abandoned by her father. For the rest of her life, she never trusted a man, and despite numerous relationships, probably never loved one either. As the years passed, she continued to work to support her family, withdrawing from anyone who tried to get close. According to Dr. Hal Shorey, 17% of adults in Western cultures fear intimacy and avoid close relationships. It's not surprising that Virginia was among these statistics. She wasn't close with any of her older siblings and rarely saw her mother. Her father had scarred her, physically and emotionally, leaving her with feelings of abandonment. As Virginia grew up, she would do anything to avoid being hurt or abandoned again. She adopted a carefree, winsome attitude that would both intrigue strangers and keep them at a distance. For her, the best way to live was with no close attachments, doing as you please. In the eighth grade, Virginia dropped out of school. She had matured very quickly, and by the age of 13, she began attracting the opposite sex. To garner attention, she often swam nude in public and was repeatedly chastised for parading through town scantily clad. This earned her a nickname with the boys around town, Lady Godiva. Virginia later told newspapers she had done her best to arouse boys in town and rarely said no to anyone. With no desire for personal connection, she attached no emotional value to sex. It was solely a means to achieving her goals, money, and notoriety. At the age of 14, Virginia married 16-year-old George Randall. The reason for their marriage is unclear, but it's likely she was preparing to leave her small southern town and George could help her move more easily. This would have been in 1931, 
not long after the onset of the Great Depression. Times were never tough for Virginia, though, who reportedly always had money to spend on perfume, makeup, and drugstore sodas. She had learned a thing or two from her grifting father and prided herself on her ability to turn a buck into a bundle, as she put it. She often enticed boys into a good time for upfront cash. Although many would consider this sex work, the young teen thought of herself more as a seductress. She enjoyed luring boys in, and the money they paid her was only an added benefit. Virginia spent three more years in Georgia, torn between an obligation to her family and an ambition to hunt bigger game. That is, richer men in a bigger city. She needed more excitement than her small town could offer. Virginia's pursuit of excitement would escalate throughout her life. She often grew bored and would always seek out riskier, more lucrative prospects. Psychologist Sam Gosling calls such behavior sensation-seeking. Virginia needed higher levels of stimulation and would begin putting herself in very dangerous situations just to feel alive. That may be why, in 1934, 17-year-old Virginia and her husband George moved to Chicago. The Windy City was appealing for many reasons. Virginia wanted to break into show business, but she was put off by New York because of the street violence and poverty. Chicago, on the other hand, was a friendly Midwestern town offering all the thrills of a big city and more. Unlike many other places during the Great Depression, the job market in Chicago was booming. If you weren't able to find work, there was a surplus of soup kitchens offering hot meals in exchange for the right vote at election time. These kitchens were actually money laundering fronts for the infamous Chicago mob boss, Al Capone. Soon, Virginia would not only become involved in his laundering racket, she would master it. She dreamt of fame and fortune, and she would get it, but not at all how she expected. Coming up, we'll see how Virginia crossed paths with some of the most infamous gangsters in Chicago history. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now, back to the story. It was 1933. 17-year-old Virginia Hill had just moved to Chicago with her 19-year-old husband, George Randall. They separated soon afterwards and were divorced within a year. Virginia had likely considered George to be dead weight. With her full figure, auburn hair, and quick wits, she could reel in bigger fish, and she had her sights set on the biggest. Sources disagree on how Virginia made ends meet her first year in Chicago. Some newspapers reported she was a strip dancer while others claim she earned $20 a week acting in risque theater productions. Others still have reported she was working as a manicurist in Chicago's Loop area when she was discovered by mobsters working for Capone. Soon after, they found work for Virginia at the 1933 Chicago World's Fair. The fair was secretly coordinated by Al Capone and his mob officers. 
The goal was to boost the city's economy and lure back tourists after a decade of gang warfare had given the city a dangerous reputation. Former Vice President Charles G. Dawes, who helped plan the event, called it the fair to end all fairs. The fair was highly successful and lucrative for everyone. Prostitution and gambling soared as tourism increased. City officials looked the other way as Capone and his mobsters seized 20% of the fair's profits. Revenue from building contracts, parking garages, even cotton candy vendors. In the center of it all was the Italian village, a courtyard offering fine restaurants and old-world ambiance. One restaurant in particular, the San Carlo, became the favorite meeting spot for Chicago's criminal underworld. Virginia worked as a waitress at the San Carlo during the 1933 fair. She would have been 19. This was where she first met many of the gangsters in Capone's racket, including Joe Epstein. Known as Joey Epp to his friends, Epstein was a quiet, intellectual bachelor and the chief accountant for the entire Capone crime outfit. At a time when the average weekly pay of Americans was $10 a week, Epstein handled hundreds of thousands of dollars a day, accepting bets that were too large to be covered by local bookies. Epstein claimed to be smitten with Virginia the first time she took his order. He became one of her regulars and left tips amounting to twice his order. What attracted him to Virginia was how little she reacted to his money or advances. Unlike other waitresses, Virginia was not looking for a husband, and she made it clear she was not for sale. Epstein said she was a solid girl with good instincts. Before long, Virginia was the favorite waitress of Capone's highest-ranking officers. Eventually, this caused Mimi Capone, Al's sister-in-law, to come see what all the fuss was about. She chatted Virginia up at the restaurant one afternoon, and the two became fast friends. Virginia and Mimi shared an affinity for drinking, laughing, and big living. Soon, they were crashing mob parties together. Admittedly, Virginia found them a little boring. Nothing but rich old men with their wives and mistresses, neither of which she aspired to be. This was the crowd she'd have to impress, however, if she wanted to grow her status, wealth, and independence. So she played nice at these parties, reportedly flirting and rubbing up against the more powerful players on the scene. It was at such a party, on June 12, 1934, that Hill was spotted by her old acquaintance, Joey Epstein. He teased her for rejecting him at the restaurant. She replied, quote, I'm doing okay by brushing you off. Why would I screw up a nice setup like that? End quote. Epstein recognized then the value Virginia could have for the mob. She was smart, but not too eager. If she could prove herself trustworthy, she could be a great operator. Epstein had access to millions of dollars in mob money that couldn't be spent. It had all been earned illegally and couldn't be reported to the government. His job was to launder it through legitimate organizations, such as the San Carlo restaurant in the Italian village. But it was becoming harder for Epstein to launder the money. The police were catching on to his usual couriers and techniques, and he had more money every day that needed to be moved across the country. The young Southern girl offered something unique. She had no record and didn't fit the usual profile of a mob courier. The police would never suspect her. As compensation, she would pocket a percentage of all the money she laundered. As soon as he pitched the idea, Virginia happily accepted. Her appetite for crime had been wet. 
She started off with small assignments, placing bets at the Washington Park racetrack. These were designed to introduce her to the operation, an increment so small it wouldn't even matter if she cheated them and stole the cash. Epstein was very clear, however, that if Virginia stole even a cent, she would be killed. In her first job, Virginia placed two winning bets and turned $4,000 of dirty money into $20,000 of gambling profits. This could be reported to the government as legal income and then quietly doled out to mafia officers. Virginia's cut was 10%, or $2,000. That would be nearly $40,000 today. Joey Epstein was prudent. He had rules to avoid getting caught and to avoid the government taxing too much of his income. He gave Virginia inside information on which horses were likely to win, but she was instructed to lose every sixth bet. Over the next few weeks, Virginia became a regular at the racetracks around Illinois and Indiana. She began to dress garishly in big colorful hats and costume jewelry. With her natural charm, she easily befriended professional gamblers. For the most part, she was a natural, making only one mistake in her early days. One gambler told Virginia about a supposed long shot bet that was actually a sure win. Against her orders, she placed all of her money on this horse instead of the one Epstein had approved. Instead of her usual small winnings, she pocketed over $200,000. The usually calm Epstein was furious. Even though Virginia had won a lot of money, the amount would draw too much attention if reported as gambling winnings. The entire amount would have to be laundered again. That would take weeks. The win had also altered odds for many of the other bets Epstein placed that day, causing a substantial loss for the Capone racket overall. After this incident, Virginia never questioned orders again. Despite the misstep, Epstein thought Virginia was ready for higher stakes rackets. Unfortunately, she was still a young, unrefined girl from the South. She wouldn't fit in with the high rollers who routinely dropped $50,000 or more on a bet. So Epstein made Virginia his protege. He educated her in the ways of high society and bought her the finest clothes and jewelry from Michigan Avenue. Virginia would soon be transporting high-priced furs and jewels across state lines, so she had to look comfortable in them. Epstein showed Virginia off to the highest echelon of society and taught her everything he knew about organized crime. He gave her a luxurious apartment and more than $3,000 a week on top of her usual 10% laundering fee. Epstein took pride in his relationship with Virginia, bragging that he was the Henry Higgins to her Eliza Doolittle. Despite appearances, the relationship was never romantic. Epstein was secretly gay. More than a first-class courier, Virginia was also serving as his cover. Virginia had come to Chicago to be an actress. Within a few years of moving, she commanded as much wealth as any movie star and was performing regularly in her everyday life, sometimes in the role of a wealthy gambler, other times as a fun-loving party girl. Though only 19, Virginia looked and acted like a woman 10 years older. She was making a name for herself as a top-notch money launderer and glamour girl. She received invitations to exclusive mafia gatherings and held her own in conversations with high-powered mobsters, men who less than a year before had crudely propositioned her when she worked as a waitress. 
It was at this time, in the summer of 1935, that Virginia undertook a new assignment. She was ordered to extort as much money as possible from Major Arterburn Riddle, a trucking company tycoon and millionaire. He regularly funded and fronted some of Capone's largest ventures, but the mob wanted more. By way of an introduction, Virginia attended a party where she knew Riddle would be. She charmed him instantly and quickly became his mistress, always showing him a good time, never letting him put his wallet away. She described Riddle as nice-looking in an older sort of way. Regardless of what she really felt, Virginia did as she was ordered. She squeezed every cent she could from him, raising her own worth to Capone's mob all the while. For her cut, Virginia was rewarded with furs, cars, clothes, and jewels. But there was a fine line between what she was and was not willing to accept. When Riddle gave her a diamond watch after making love, Virginia threw it in the toilet. Virginia resented any implication she was trading sex for money. Over the years, she would reportedly sleep with dozens of men, if not more. But it was always on her own terms. Virginia cheated on Riddle frequently. And when he finally ran out of money, she grew tired of him. After a year and a half, she stopped seeing him. He attended mob parties for the next two months, but could no longer continue his donations. Virginia had completely cleaned him out, as ordered. Within weeks of the breakup, Hill was promoted to higher-paying scams, a reward for her part in what they called the Riddle Squeeze. She was betting tens of thousands of dollars a day at the racetracks and still keeping 10% of the winnings. In addition to horse races, she started covering wagers for baseball, football, and most lucrative of all, boxing at the Chicago Stadium. Boxing was a major moneymaker for the mob because it was easily rigged. By paying off only one of the fighters, they controlled exactly how and when the match would be thrown. Wagers for rigged fights were called sucker bets. Virginia's job was to coax as many sucker bets as possible, enticing gamblers to bet on the fighters who were taking dives. She carried receipts and money for Joey Epstein in plain view of police, who couldn't figure out how the money was changing hands. They never suspected the 20-year-old redhead flirting with the high rollers in the front row. Virginia's status within the Chicago mob continued to grow. Before long, she was violating federal law, transporting stolen merchandise across the country to Indiana, Michigan, even Florida. The mob would stage heists at stores they secretly owned and then claim the insurance money for items they'd taken. They would deliver the stolen goods, often furs and jewelry, to Virginia's apartment, along with a plane ticket. She would wrap herself in as much of the loot as possible and carry the rest in her suitcase. To the authorities, she looked like a Chicago socialite who simply overpacked. State police and the FBI had no idea of her involvement in the heists. Things were going well for Virginia. She was thriving financially, and as her work became more dangerous, she became more excited about it. The higher-ups in Capone's mafia were growing fond of her. Mobster Charles Fischetti called her a right broad. Joey Epstein said she'd become tougher than any guy he'd ever want to cross. At the age of 20, Virginia was one of the only women ever allowed to sit at the table, hearing gang leaders plot out new ventures, hits, and takeovers. 
She was rubbing elbows with the country's most powerful men, learning everything there was to know about the inner workings of organized crime. By 1936, she had enough information to take down the entire Chicago hierarchy, but if she leaked any of it, she'd be executed. She impressed the crime lord Jake Guzik so much, he offered her a string of brothels to run. He'd been having problems with the girls and thought Virginia could help straighten them out. The girls at Guzik's brothels were sex trafficking victims. They'd been kidnapped from the streets of Chicago or lured from Illinois farms and forced into sex work. Guzik laughed that a tough cookie like Virginia would have no reservations belting a girl to keep her in line. Virginia was incensed, not by the sex trafficking, but by the insult to her capabilities. She told Guzik, quote, I don't shill for nobody no more, end quote. After carving out a niche in the gambling rackets, working for him would have been a step down in status and pay. It wasn't long before Virginia was fed up with the whole Chicago scene. She wanted to see a new city and try her hand at bigger scams. Her thrill-seeking tendencies were growing to dangerous new levels. Virginia was rising in the ranks of the mob in a way that few women ever had or ever would again. It had been uncommon for her as a woman to be invited to launder money for Capone. But as she proved particularly adept at not only implementing but understanding scams, her true value was recognized. In the 30s, the only women working for the mob were those who ran brothels and seduced Johns. The male mobsters definitely didn't consider them equals. Virginia, by comparison, was thought of as smarter, tougher, more powerful, more charming, and completely trustworthy. When Virginia grew bored, the mob wanted to keep her happy. So her Chicago associates hatched a new plot to test her skills. She would infiltrate the inner circle of the largest, most powerful outfit in the nation's organized crime world, the Genovese family of the New York Mafia. The ruler of this family, Charles Lucky Luciano, was the sworn enemy of Al Capone. Both grew up in Brooklyn, where they had belonged to a street gang called the Five Pointers. As a Sicilian, Luciano instantly hated Capone, whose family was from Naples. The rivalry between these two territories is centuries old, and Lucky mocked Capone's bloodline every chance he could. This was a serious point of contention for Capone, who could never become a legitimate member of the Mafia because of his heritage. As a hard and fast rule, only Sicilians could become made guys. Though Capone eventually moved to Chicago and took control of his own mob, it would never have the official backing that Luciano's family had. When they were in the Five Pointers, Luciano and Capone were attacked one night by a rival gang. Luciano lied to convince everyone that Capone was to blame for the skirmish. This incident prompted Capone's move to Chicago and precipitated a decade-long cold war between the Big Apple and the Windy City. Both sides vowed blood would flow in every gutter in every street of America before the war was over. This is where Virginia was headed next, New York, smack dab in the middle of Capone's mounting vendetta with Lucky Luciano. To Virginia, it sounded like one hell of a time. Up next, we'll follow Virginia to the East Coast, where she'd mingle with the world's deadliest gangsters. Now back to the story. It was 1937, 
20-year-old Virginia Hill was packing her bags for New York City. Al Capone's Chicago mob was sending her on a mission to seduce and spy on Brooklyn's top racketeer, Joey Adonis. Joey Adonis was born Joe Dodo. In the late 1920s, he was a trigger man for Murder Incorporated, New York's bloodiest and most terrifying execution squad. Rival gangs teased him, calling him Joey the Dodo, or Doodoo. So when he took over Murder Incorporated, he changed his name to Adonis. When asked why, he usually said, because I'm so good looking. The mob outfits in Chicago and New York had some bad blood. But if the two cities found a way to cooperate, they could both expand their operations nationwide. So as a sign of good faith, Chicago allowed Joey Adonis to move in on some of their city's gambling rackets. In exchange, New York allowed Chicago to traffic narcotics through their territory on the East Coast. Virginia was given orders to cozy up to Joey A., follow him everywhere, and report back if he was skimming money from his Chicago deals. Skimming is commonplace with the mafia, but Joey A. was known for taking more than his fair due. Since the Chicago mob had extended these deals as a peace offering, they wouldn't tolerate any nonsense. If Joey A. was skimming, Virginia needed to obtain enough evidence to have him righteously killed. According to Underworld associate Jack Pignataro, Quote, Virginia was a real live wire in New York. She got a real kick out of the fact that she was doing a little spying, and she thought screwing over Joey A would be interesting. She meant it both ways, too. Screwing and screwing over. End quote. Adonis met Virginia in the dining room of New York's Algonquin Hotel. Adonis had been set up by a mutual associate to help Virginia fence $10,000 in stolen jewelry. He knew she was working for the Chicago mob and was curious to meet the girl who had taken the Windy City by storm. They were attracted to each other instantly, and within two weeks, they were a well-known couple. Joey was already married, but that was inconsequential. Virginia called their relationship electric. Joey A. said Virginia was insatiable. Soon after they started dating, Adonis and Virginia teamed up professionally. She worked for him just as she had for Joey Epp, placing bets at the racetrack, fixing odds for fights, and collecting bribes and payoffs. Everyone in New York loved Virginia, and they were happier trading money with her than an aggressive enforcer. Adonis made more money working with Virginia than he had when he was alone. Virginia was working for both sides, laundering money and transporting stolen goods for both the New York and Chicago mobs. She drove Joey Adonis's loot to Chicago, then loaded up with stolen items from Capone and Joey Epstein to take back to New York. As these transactions added up, Virginia kept records in her private diary. The diary incriminated dozens of players in the Chicago and New York organizations, and detailed bribes to politicians across the country. If anyone ever found the diary, they would execute her. If this worried Virginia, she never showed it. She had a plan for that diary, and it was well worth the risk. The diary full of valuable evidence could be Virginia's insurance policy, if she was ever in trouble. She could also choose to sell it for a small fortune if she was hard up for cash. For now, though, she hadn't aroused anyone's suspicion least of all Joey Adonis, who dined and danced with her every night. For the most part, Virginia stayed in Joey A's good graces. 
a difficult task as he was notoriously quick-tempered. He was known to pistol whip or kill anyone who disagreed with him. Everyone dutifully called him Joe, Joey A, or Mr. Adonis. Virginia, however, loved calling him Dodo, seeing how far she could tease him with his old nicknames before he'd explode. By multiple accounts, Virginia enjoyed taunting powerful, scary men, much as she had her father at the age of seven, playing out this scene from her childhood over and over again and emerging triumphant would provide Virginia with a sense of self-worth. Author and professor Dr. Leon Seltzer claims that usually such assertiveness and bullying leaves perpetrators alienated and alone. Thus far, however, Virginia's assertiveness had only gained her respect within the mob. She had learned through experience that if she wanted to be treated well by the powerful men around her, she had to prove they didn't intimidate her. Joey A. sometimes beat Virginia for mouthing off, but it wasn't anything she couldn't handle. This was the price, she figured, of associating with violent gangsters. She would gladly trade a black eye for the chance to assert her own strength over a famous hitman like Joey A. For the most part, though, Virginia and Joey A were friends, as well as business partners. They dated for a while, but they certainly didn't love each other. Joey A was married, and Virginia never emotionally attached herself to a man, except potentially her most famous fling, Bugsy Siegel. Ben Siegel was a gangster who had become wealthy as a bootlegger during Prohibition. He was famous for his hair-trigger temper and for being a little nuts. That's how he got the nickname Bugsy. It's rumored that once, while playing poker, Bugsy suspected the man across from him was cheating, as he hadn't been trading out his cards. Bugsy shot him dead. His trademark was two shots in the head, one in the heart. After that, he sat the dead body up in a chair and dealt him a fresh hand. When the dead man refused new cards again, Bugsy shot him three more times, laughing hysterically. It's clear from interviews that no one in the mob really cared for Joey Adonis. He was pompous, brazen, and greedier than a gangster should be. Bugsy, however, hated him more than most. They had bad blood that dated back to their days working together as hitmen in Murder Incorporated. Now, Bugsy saw an opportunity to insult Joey A's manhood and label him a chump by stealing his girl, Virginia Hill. Bugsy pretended to bump into Virginia when she was on a date with Joey A at a bar in Brooklyn. Both Bugsy and Virginia were underworld celebrities at the time, and they had heard of each other already it's likely Bugsy had been planning to steal her away for weeks. He was notorious for hatching long, complicated schemes. He was also known for his dazzling blue eyes and rugged good looks. He was much handsomer than Joey A, and much more charming. He was well-connected, but fiercely independent, ignoring the mafia hierarchy when he could to carve out his own opportunities. Virginia, who was equally enterprising, admired this quality. They each considered loyalty to be foolish. They were also both hopeless thrill-seekers, attracted to danger and risk. Such a combination was too tempting for Virginia to ignore. The night after she met him, Virginia did the one thing she wasn't allowed to do. She slept with Bugsy, the rival of the man she was in New York to tail. When Joey A found out, he was furious. He had Luciano send Bugsy to California, and he quickly lost interest in Virginia. 
her entire assignment was ruined. She moved back to Chicago, where the Capone family punished her by limiting the size of her racetrack bets and ending her weekly allowance. On probation and a very tight budget, Virginia moved to a series of cheaper and cheaper hotels before leaving Chicago altogether. She needed a break from the constant stress of Capone's mob, and she also needed to distance herself, for the time being, from Luciano's New York outfit. She decided to return home to Marietta, Georgia. On the other side of the country, never far from Virginia's mind, Bugsy Siegel was setting up his own operations in California. Though Virginia was taking a break with her mother and family, it wouldn't be long until she was pulled to the West Coast into an even bigger scheme as the sinister Capone and Luciano feud escalated into a violent, bloody war. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Next week, we'll see how Virginia Hill, the queen of the mob, amassed more money and influence in the world of organized crime than any woman ever had, and how it finally all came crashing down. You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Freddie Beckley and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson.